All right, welcome to Schooled by Cinema. This is the film class you want, won't want to sleep through. And today uh, <laughs> I am here to talk Westerns with Preston Mitchell. Hello. Hey, Lexi, how's it going? Good. I am very excited to get down and dirty and ride some horses and do the thing. Oh, well, thank you for thank you for having me, Pilgrim. <laughs> oh man, this is gonna get bad, isn't it? We're gonna start doing all the bad puns. All the all the all the bad impressions, Lexi. You know that will do. <laughs> <laughs> well, this mini series. So I'm breaking this up into mini series, and the first one is on cinematography, and so we are talking The Searchers by John Ford. And the actually the cinematographer on this one is, and I have it written down, Winton C. Hotch. I like to shout out the cinematographers or all the people who, you know, are kind of working on this, this piece. And I wanted to ask you, the first question is, um, what does cinematography mean to you? Mm. Wow, uh, for some reason I didn't, I embrace for that being the first question. Um, <laughs> you're, you're really good at this. Um, putting me in a corner. No, I, I think cinematography is super integral to, to film. I think film is first and foremost a visual medium. Mm -hmm. I think the beauty of it and why it's probably my favorite art form is because it synthesizes all the other existing art forms before it. Um, and uh, I think the visuals do. I think visuals do an amazing job of an of. They're they're able to leap the nuance off a page that, just the bare bones of a script can't do, and um, especially when you're watching a movie from this type, like this type, this era, that we're that we're about to dig into this genre. I think the visuals are everything, and I, I just I can't, I can't imagine talking about a movie like the searchers without discussing its visual component which is in part a big reason why i was i jumped at the chance uh, whenever you propose this idea so yeah definitely definitely important i'm happy you were flexible and wanted to do a western with me as i was saying i westerns are westerns are one of my least experienced genres besides war films so i'm glad to have you on because you have uh, a history with them I have a bit of a history. I have a bit of a history. Um, now let me let me ask you first. I'm gonna throw the ball uh -huh. in a second. Um, <laughs> what do you mean? Why? This is all about you. <laughs> hey, it's your show. I, I, but I, but I, I do have to ask though, um, because I I so uh, let me let me ask you this: Is your lack of experience from westerns? Is it a hesitation? Is it an aversion? Is this something that? Were you shown Westerns as a kid? Like, what is your... And you're not going to offend me, by the way. Like, you can name movies, <laughs> this or that. Like, I... I... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I think the, the, the reason I've always been at a distance with Westerns is because they're kind of seen as, like, a machismo kind of genre. Mm. And I feel a lot of hesitancy towards that because I feel like it's something that I should appreciate but the machismo like and the the male ass dominated aspect like really puts me off and i just think it's because i feel a lot of hesitancy towards um anything male dominated just mm -hmm. as a woman and i feel that like 
you know, glass ceiling a little bit where it's like, I'm not going to understand this because I'm a woman, you know, kind of thing. Fascinating. Interesting. <laughs> no, I, I, I actually, um, that's one interpretation I don't hear as much. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, because I, it's funny because I, I do see a lot of what you're talking about in Westerns. Yeah. It's funny. It's, it's one of my probably most lived with genres by extension one of my one of my favorite genres of, of film uh, -huh. uh but i do see a lot of machismo but the more i dig into them especially this year uh -huh. the more i connect with them on a sensitivity level Ooh. um and and there's a lot of nuance particularly with this film this filmmaker um and just like this era of westerns uh that i really uh, uh appreciate emotionally yeah. Um, and so, yeah, not not to value from the from the jump. Uh, quite no, that. but I think I watched Stagecoach actually last night because we, you know, I wanted to give myself a little bit more of a template for John Ford. And that film kind of uh, from what I've learned, it kind of changed the genre because it was kind of more of a B movie. And then it became more of a more of a prestige film and prestige films in in that way and I, as i was watching it i was like this this feels like the modern template for almost like an action movie where you have all the characters set up yeah yeah uh, I and, mean, and it like there's characterizations but there's a little bit of nuance to their characterizations yeah i mean uh, what western well I, let me put it this way there's <laughs> <laughs> Hypothetically speaking, like what Western before that would have a character like Thomas Mitchell, yeah. um, you know, who's battling his own kind of like career on the rocks, aging kind of thing. And then you juxtapose that with the romance between Claire Trevor and John Wayne. Uh -huh. um, and I think what blows a lot of people like away about seeing stage push for the first time, especially because uh, I saw it as an adult. I didn't see it in sort of mm -hmm. pandemic, um, even though I had seen other John Ford movies before that. But it was really interesting to see kind of the birth of John Wayne as a persona, because he had been making movies since the silent era. Um, and I can't claim to, to be a John Wayne expert on that era of him. Mm -hmm. My knowledge begins with him from like the, from Stagecoach on. Um, and, and even then, um, I was blown away by just how romantic of a lead he is in Stagecoach mm -hmm. um, and how effective I personally found the romance to be uh, in, the, in the film. Because um, I think since it is the first action movie, it has more in line with thrillers and adventure movies than it does with, um, even though it birthed what we know now as the action genre or in part, mm -hmm. uh, um, I think there's an adventure movie aspect to how the movie is still very character driven. Obviously, um, the movie is a product of its time and how it is very much, um, you know, these heroes, you know, basically shooting down a bunch of brown people. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and, I'm, and I know that we're going to probably address that a few times because I, even I have my own thoughts about that um, mm -hmm. with the searchers as well and how the movie chooses to address that. But I think a movie like Stagecoach needed to happen, not just for the Western, not just for birthing John Wayne, mm -hmm. um, but also just for for really setting a template to get John Ford kind of really out of the the silent era that he was so mm -hmm. experienced in, because he's very visual as a filmmaker, as you can probably mm -hmm. tell from these two films. Mm -hmm. And we, by the time you get to The Searchers, he's had a whole 
he's already had kind of a, a mini little micro career going on of making these like artistically boundary pushing westerns. His career is so extensive. It's kind of amazing. And he wore <laughs> he won like four Academy Awards for The Informer, The Grapes of Wrath, How Green Is My Valley, and The Quiet Man. Yes, yes. I was going to put on The Quiet Man the other night and I saw the trailer and I was like, I don't think this is for me. It's all about John. <laughs> John Wayne, like pressuring Maureen O'Hara to marry him or something like that. And like he needs the dowry. And I was just like, nope, I, I don't think this is what's going to happen. <laughs> oh, man. Well, well, before I get into my thoughts on The Quiet yeah. Man, what, what, what did you feel about Stagecoach overall? I forgot to ask you that. I thought it was, it was like very much like, as I was saying before, the template for an action movie. It felt like it, you could see how like the Poseidon adventure comes from that movie. Mm -hmm. And like even our more modern action movies, it like. Mad Max Fury Road? Huh? I was going to say Mad Max Fury Road, I think is like. Yeah. Some, yeah exactly yeah because yeah. it, it sets up the characters in like the first 15 minutes it sets up the hurdles they're gonna face and the fact that they're going into these hurdles knowing what the hurdles are gonna be and they're still planning on it and i just think it's it's kind of amazing what the legacy of that movie and it's all it's maybe not talked of as much anymore i feel like john ford is kind of i wouldn't say a forgotten director but he's just not in that canon as people say like you know coppola or you know cronenberg mm. or anything, you know i think part of the problem is that um so having seen more more john ford well i guess having revisited uh some of john ford's movies that i have seen having been introduced to to more of his movies since the from the pandemic on mm -hmm. um uh Stagecoach, I'm 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 very new to the Quiet Man. I'm I'm more newer to those were more like like I said like pandemic watches. Those two movies in particular, mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of his work comes off to people as old timey. And I I can profess that from my perspective because I felt that way for a long time to be yeah. honest. So I guess this gets into what my relationship is with the Western. Kind of like one of the first I guess talking points is. Um, just growing up in my family, like they always had Western TV on, like Gunsmoke, Bonanza, stuff like that. Um, and I vividly remember, you're gonna laugh at me. This this kind of tells you my <laughs> my age a bit. One of two of the first DVDs I ever had were um, the original X-Men and Shrek, literally. So, so uh, you're the Shrek generation. <laughs> yeah, That's my brother. He's he's six years younger than me, and he was in the Shrek, Shrek generation for sure. Yeah, no, we're we're the meme group over here. Um, <laughs> the, us us millennials. So no, but my daughter and I actually have watched all the Shrek movies, and they are they are funny. The animation is horrible, but there are some <laughs> funny moments in them for sure. But no, the animation is just like awful. Just like. Like the first one is just it's like watching paper cutouts like on a screen. It's just so bad. Yeah, no, the the it's funny, like the rest of the movie looks like the do lot section. No, that, that's so true. <laughs> exactly. It's it <laughs> like I said, I, I'm showing my age here a bit, but uh I do have an I do have an effect I still have an affection for um those those first few Shreks. But um but no, um I bring that up because um I specifically remember I wanted my mom 
to like buy me like some anime, another anime movie on uh-huh. DVD. Just from an early age, I was already like kind of obsessed with certain types of movies, even though I wasn't exposed to a lot yet. And so she was like, um, well, I want to buy this like, because she was all about the dollar bin, like, you know, spending yeah. less money on movies uh-huh. uh, to get a lot, that kind of thing. Like those like $5 Walmart packs of where you would get uh-huh. like 30, 30 movies or whatever. I simply remember she buys a copy of um, the Lone Ranger. It was a po- It was the first two or three episodes of the original like fifty show, I think, mm-hmm. that were strung together as a movie. Okay. And and so I remember she put it on for me one day to get me to shut the fuck up and <laughs> <laughs> to stop whining about. Understandable as a parent. Yeah, exactly. She was like, you're going to watch this. Like, this is what I want to watch. You're going to watch this too. And um, I remember just being like glued to the glued to the screen, literally. Um, in retrospect, I look back on it. Um, I haven't seen the the Lone Ranger, you know, show in, in Jesus, probably, um, oh, probably almost 20 years now. Uh, but def- but I mean, looking back on it, I mean, the, the whole the whole thing about um, Tonto and stuff like that. The whole mm-hmm. like, a lot of people have talked about that and, and the issues of that. But what got me was the fact that it was a guy wearing a cowboy hat who basically was left for dead, and he picks up this mantle and a mask and and goes on an adventure. Mm-hmm. And the pilot very much plays like one of the early superhero movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and having growing grown up in the kind of the what I call the second cycle of the comic book boom. Um, cause I look at it as, as, as four cycles, you know, the, the seventies and the eighties, you have kind of like the, you know, the, the supermans and the Batmans and stuff like that. Um, the second cycle, what I'm talking about being like, kind of like the blade X-Men Renaissance mm-hmm. the third being Iron Man, Dark Knight. And I think we're hitting the, the fourth cycle. Currently. Oh yeah. Hard. Um, yeah. Hard. <laughs> but <laughs> 40 miles an hour, you know, just right there. Very, very much. Uh, but I say all that to say um, that mo- that movie kind of inspired me to really start paying more attention to stuff like that. And so I, I remember my mom actually um, shared up buying me uh, um, one of the I think one of the early DVDs of High Noon from 1958. And so I, I watched that. And speaking of John Wayne, I watched that in Rio Bravo a lot Mm -hmm. from when I was like a kid to when I was a teenager. So those were kind of like the earliest Westerns I got into. And then um, the remake of 310 Yuma as well that came out in in 07. When I was a teenager, I would watch the hell out of that movie. And and, uh, the professionals with Lee Marvin, like stuff like that. And of course, I eventually... Um, but the, the big, the big movie for me, <clears throat> Sans the Lone Ranger, the big movie for me was when I went to my brother's closet because my brother and I, we're, um, we're almost, a <laughs> it feels like a generation apart. We're about half a generation <laughs> apart. And so he would buy movies of his own. And so, um, I remember digging to his closet and like, I dug through like blade and like face off and stuff like that. All these nineties <laughs> action movies that of course brothers are going to be into that are older. Um, you can't watch this. You're a kid. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he had like a copy of because uh, uh, he was he was he he used to buy Criterion's as well, like the DVDs. Like he had a oh, copy. Wow. Of, he used to have. Yeah, no, he was an art. He was a, an art major, so uh, uh. He, he had a copy of Eight and a Half, the Fellini movie, and 
even from an early age, I was like, wow, this is pretentious. The fact you have this in our closet, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding people. But, um, no, but um, he had a copy of Once Upon a Time in the West, the oh, okay. Sergio Leone movie. Mm -hmm. And that movie blew me the fuck away when I was like mm -hmm. 10 or 11. And it's almost like ever since then, I've been chasing the depth that that movie has because that yeah. movie very much feels, it came out in 68. The movie we're talking about is from 1956 and Stagecoach is 1939. So you hit these three different periods of Western. Yeah. And I feel like Once Upon a Time in the West is kind of like, for its time, was like the 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 summation of what um, Sergio Leone, who directed it, was kind of the summation of, of this genre that he loved so much. And ever since then, I think a subliminal part of me has been kind of chasing the depth of that movie. Mm -hmm. I do think many movies have come close in the wake of that movie and definitely before that. Like, I've, I'm actually, I've become a much bigger fan of 40s and 50s Westerns, even more so than the spaghetti stuff that mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people my age seem to gravitate to a lot more. But nonetheless, um, it definitely has been quite a ride I've spent like so much of my uh, movie journey really like putting people onto Westerns, talking mm -hmm. about them. Um, and I guess now you want to know like, what is the appeal outside of like the mask <laughs> and stuff? Like what, like what, what does this guy like about well, Westerns so much? I mean, they are kind of like superhero movies. They're like mythology almost. Yeah. Well, that's just it. Like the, the word mythicism, I think, rings true in so much of these like early films and because the thing is look like <laughs> i i i really like i love romantic comedies yeah. genuinely i do like it's my favorite type of comedy and i do like more comedies than i don't yeah but the thing about early comedies is that they very much feel like plays and i think that's amazing i think yeah the, you know they're they're action movies with dialogue basically like they okay action movies have dialogue that's a stupid thing to say <laughs> instead of instead of action acrobatics the acrobatics yeah. are 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 verse and and lyric and and wordplay that kind of well, thing we lost that because comedy has become more contextual than wit based because a lot of those early mm -hmm. comedies like even screwball like up through even you know when harry met sally it's like a lot of those comedy or romantic comedies are like zing 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 like the mm -hmm. people having the chemistry and able to work off of each other and then we get into this era where you know comedies or romantic comedies become more based on the culture rather than people having chemistry with each other and able to talk with each other in a more realistic way, you know, or heightened realistic way. No, I think that's a, a really fascinating point. And I think that's, it's almost like the Western has gone in the opposite direction. <laughs> Obviously they're not the four as, as they used to, but yeah. the, the point I was making was, uh, earlier with the, especially the screwball stuff. I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah. that very much, a lot of those movies, like the Philadelphia story and stuff like that, they were yeah. adapting plays. Or in the case mm -hmm. of like a Preston Sturges movie, like the the uh, the Palm Beach story or something like that, like it, the appeal is the script. The appeal is is the verbiage. However, with westerns, and this is where John Ford comes into play, since he came up in the silent era, I feel like they go above and beyond really attacking the visual aesthetic that makes film so palpable and so beautiful and so trend uh uh 
really, really transcendent, um, mm -hmm. uh, just off, off base, because a lot of it is about scenery, and more so if we're putting it contextually. Um, <laughs> if we're putting it contextually, um, these movies. This is how cinema began. Like this is. Yeah. These were some of the, these were the earliest action movies. And what I find so fascinating looking back on them, every time I watch a Western, whether it be good or bad, and trust me, there are Westerns I don't <laughs> like. I watched one today that I was like, man, this is a, a, a fucking bore. But, um, <laughs> but I'm glad I watched it. But nonetheless, yeah. uh, it's the fact that it really does look upon um, these people who were undergoing Western expansion in the American West but unlike a period drama, it's more so about how the Victorian style ideals clash with the lawlessness of these sundown towns and really of, and, and oftentimes the birth of civilization while you're getting the pulpy component of barroom brawls and violence and tension and suspense and those kinds of things. When you really break it down, what differentiates a Western from just any other action film or adventure film is that it really is about the clash of those ideals. And I think, I know some people who prefer Westerns to be action movies. I know some who prefer them to be like thrillers or even like, there's even Western comedies that I think are actually pretty effective at showing, at typifying those ideals that I'm referring to. Yeah. But either way, I think they're, the genre has evolved into being so broad that I don't think it ever really died nor do I think it's ever truly going to die because thanks to a small invention called Twitter <laughs> <laughs> and podcasting, yes. um, you have people who really do want to keep that flame alive. And uh, just as a lifelong Western fan, someone I'll say this, like I'll say growing up, I liked Westerns. I thought they were cool. I thought they were dope. I never really understood why people, I was like, you don't like Westerns? Like why are you, yeah. cowboy hats, that kind of thing. But I honestly think the contradictions that come from the fact these movies were made by predominantly white men about almost superheroic white men of from these early decades of, of the beginnings of cinema, I think that those contradictions that you get from that, like the approach to women, the approach to race, how a lot of these films, through all of that problematic stuff, were still attempting to make statements because of the nature of those you know the, the those immigrants really come into play and i think that's typified best by john ford because he was born from irish immigrants a family of of, of them yeah um and and really wanted to make movies even when he made his non-western stuff like the quiet man stuff like how great is my valley um which i which i prefer to the quiet man actually um that movie's all about uh, an Irish family in the early 1900s. It is all about really chronicling the pessimism, the challenges, but also the warmth and the familial component in a lot of the things that I think you really see in The Searchers, which which is, is I think, considered by most to be uh, his opus. Um, yeah. Well, I understand that. And I feel like the putting this movie into context um, plays makes it play better because at this time we're dealing with the red scare mm. very heavily people being blacklisted there's kind of this um real need to americanize cinema coming from the noir which is like 
feels feels more European and like Otto Preminger who is European and like these kinds of films that came before it which were really prominent it feels like this need to like explain American identity on film and so they do this by capitalizing on people like John Wayne who bring this presence he has this voice he's He's dominant but soft at the same time. And then also you pair that with the landscapes of America, which are unique in the fact that it gets so dry in the summer, cold winter, snow in the, you know, winter, all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, it's very interesting how it typifies a lot of what America was going through at that time. No, no, uh, a thousand percent. I, I think, I think you really see that it's almost like with the searchers. Um, it's funny. Cause like, I've seen this movie several times. I watched it for the first time when I was about no later than 13. I know that for a fact. Uh, cause it's, it was, it's so revered and it's like, it's one of those movies where I feel like, especially if you saw it at an impressionable age, like I did, or even, hell even in your early 20s it's like Casablanca where it's like you watch it and it's yeah. like oh that's what a movie looks like like the first time you see Indiana Jones whether you remember the first mm -hmm. time or not like it's like that's a movie and the searchers I think you get that because of the scenery the fact that it's I mean literally it's the most iconic movie set that that was filmed in Monument Valley uh, which yeah. is John Ford's favorite place to film his movies um, um, I think that's, um, I'm trying to remember off top, uh, Southwestern or Northern Utah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Cool. 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 Yeah. Cool. See, I, I know things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's also an interesting way to kind of talk about how this movie was filmed because it was filmed in Vista vision, which you mm -hmm. probably are kind of aware of. And in layman's terms, it's just a way that they, you know, tips the film stock sideways. So you get a wider frame and you're able to see more of the picture. And also it was really popular because the theaters didn't have to buy any new equipment. They basically could just tilt the, you know, projector on the side and project it. And you can see that in this movie, like, it's amazing the visuals they get from it. It wasn't all filmed in like LA, like a canyon. What's it called? I can't remember. Wait, what'd you say? Brenson Sorry. Brenton Canyon in LA. <laughs> you know? You can tell it's not filmed there. I can never remember the name of that canyon. I even though I've been there and it's really cool. And it does look like you're in the West, but you can tell the difference. <laughs> No, there's there. Oh Jesus, um, <laughs> I, I completely agree. I mean, there's there's a greenness to to this film. I think the shot, or the series of shots that always gets me when I watch this movie. And I was cu I'm curious up front how you feel about these shots. Mm -hmm. um, it's when Martin Polly and Ethan Edwards, uh, um, played by ba -ba 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 -ba, uh, just off. To, I, I'm already free. Jeffrey Hunter. Excuse me, Jeffrey yeah. Hunter and John Wayne. Their characters. Uh, it's when they're in the snow and um, yes. you really see John Wayne's already worn down. Um, he, he's, he has a little five o'clock shadow going on. Same with Martin mm -hmm. Polly. He's starting to get that like very male um, grizzle to him mm -hmm. face wise because his eyes are sunken in and John Wayne, John, 
John Ford frames them um, kind of with a bit of deep focus uh, when yeah. you see them coming out on horses. So I was curious, um, how'd you feel about that shot? Well, so the, that shot was like, oh, I get why this movie is called The Searchers because they're men looking for identity in America. Like, that's just kind of what hit me when I saw that shot. I was like, they're lost in America. They're lost in their own country. They don't know who they are. And they're searching for what they think will give them identity by finding this girl. Mm. I, I love that you said that. It's, it's, <laughs> it's weird. I didn't think about that from the shot, but... I think that's I think that's apt. I'm just like so tired and they've been looking for so long and at that point it's been like what a year or two or like maybe even longer it's like mm -hmm. it's been two years I think by that yeah point. and it's just like they are so tired but they have not given up and it's like so many people would have just given up at that point and you know he so it I guess this is the question is John Wayne hurt like uncle I wasn't quite sure uh, like, yeah, yeah. Remember, that's what I thought. He was like an uncle, and like, and so the whole, and it also sets it up at the beginning when she, when he gives her the um, medal. Yes, yes, Debbie. Um, so they establish uh, early on that um, yeah. when you when Ethan comes through at the beginning, John Wayne's character. Uh -huh. um, that's the first time that he meets Debbie, like as a little girl, yes. and yeah. you know he's picking her up, he's playing with her, um, he gives her the medal. Like you were mm -hmm. saying, um, whereas Lucy, he already has a bit of a history with because she's a lot older. And yeah. so um, I think when when it's clear that Lucy's been murdered, it's there's been implied to have been some assault by the yeah. by the by the Comanche people um, who murdered her. Uh, he takes it so hard. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that leads into kind of the one of the big narrative thrusts of this movie that that's endlessly fascinating, which is the moment that Ethan learns that Debbie is possibly has possibly been a quote unquote assimilated uh -huh. into uh, Comanche living. Um, he contemplates finding her and killing her, even though he says to Martin Polly uh, at a certain point that, you know, I'm, I'm finding her because she's my kin. Like she's definitely you. Whereas, yeah. Martin Polly's connection to the family is one that they took him in when he was a boy. Like, mm -hmm. uh, and despite his, um, despite his, uh, like, despite his his multiracial heritage, um, they really do see him as a part of the family. Whereas mm -hmm. Ethan never really does. Um, yeah, and I think it's that dichotomy—the fact that Ethan has spent he spent five years between. Um, four or five years between the civil war and the, mm -hmm. and the events of the movie. Cause it begins in 1860, 68. Um, well, it, it also feels like with the, with the medal that he gives her, when you're talking about the war, he feels like almost a lack of, you know, like you feel like he didn't really do anything courageous in the war, which is why he gives the medal away. And so he's searching mm -hmm. for something courageous to do to prove well, that he is the man that's worthy of this kind of metal. He, it's almost like he's wanting to get his soul back, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Cause, cause I, I thought about this, this most recent time that I watched the movie, cause I, I never really thought about this before, but like the fact that he's an, he's a Confederate, he was a Confederate soldier. He's yeah. been wandering, searching, uh, mm -hmm. LOL. 
um, (laughs) searching before the events of the movie for about four or five years. And within that time, he comes back to the events of the movie saying racist shit um, with um, possibly having killed people. He never really talks about it, but you believe through um, um, Ward Bond's character, who he strives up a little bit of a of uh, camaraderie, camaraderie with throughout the movie mm-hmm. that he has a past that he can't really talk about because his family is so taciturn and so settled mm-hmm. in to a life that he can't really live because that's just not what he's accustomed to. But it's the fact that he comes back from those excursions so well-worn already. He's experienced, mm-hmm. you know, he, whenever um, he finds the, 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 the dead Comanche body in the first act, you know, he makes an effort to shoot both eyes out so that the spirit can't cross over. Mm. Um, so he, so he knows that like he has studied a lot of their ways. Like he knows how they think and feel. And yet he still comes back knowing another identity searching for another one. But he, but he, his version of beginning his arc is hatred. And it's in contrast to Martin Polly's love and care. Yeah. Uh, for um, really for his family members, uh, most of them, you know, are killed killed off by Act One, and uh, yeah, I think that dichotomy is so so interesting. Yeah. So, and I was listening to this uh, interview with Martin Scorsese and how he felt about this movie, and he was like saying how an obsessed character he was, and. Mm-hmm he hates beyond the grave as you said when he shut out the eyes of the um person that he found from the Comanche nation and it's just that you can feel it with every movement he makes that he's almost like he's struggling with his hatred because he doesn't Mm -hmm. really know where it comes from except for the fact that he's had to fight these people his whole life it's like it's like you come back from a war that you've been fighting your whole life. You can't it, it you can't really ever assimilate to a day-to-day situation because you're programmed in such a way that you can't think outside of these um almost preeminent attack modes. Like you have to be on the defensive so much. Like he he can't function outside of his hatred. And he's always on edge throughout this movie. Yes. I feel like you. I feel like John Wayne. Well, before I say what I have to say, let me get into this. Is what is okay? So for someone who is, you know, you've professed to not be as with Western. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming that you probably have a similar relationship with John Wayne. So I'm curious, how do you feel about John Wayne? How did you feel about him before watching these two movies, especially The Searchers? And definitely, how do you feel? right now talking about his performance that's a good question um honestly before once again it's that machismo wall that i come up against where i'm just like i I don't know if i can i don't know if i can you know relate to him in any single way and i still don't think i can (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is that bad? Nerd, I mean, I mean hey. That's okay. That you don't have to relate to every character. And I think yeah. the reason I'm going on this journey on this podcast is because there's so much I want to learn. And I feel like getting outside of your comfort zone is really, really um 
important. And I am impressed with him as an actor more than I was before. But I honestly feel like a lot of what he's doing um, is carried over by the script, by the visualizations, by the cinematography, by the director. He is like almost like a a statue who's being, you know, it's almost like, you know, <laughs> it's like puppetry. Like he's being used to by every, but I mean, that's kind of what an actor's supposed to do, I guess. Sure, sure, sure. No, um, I, I think he's the, not bringing any of the the nuance. I'm sorry, I'm going to be canceled right now. I believe it. Um, so but are, are you not so, bringing? It's oh. he's interpreting, and Ford is directing him in a way to get the kind of uh, get what he wants out of him. I, you know, I love that. I love that you said that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> true no truthfully um especially because again like you're you know you're you're coming at this from fresh eyes and and it that helps me kind of gauge my next point that i want to make from my perspective is uh so going back to my history of westerns a lot of my like older like a lot of my like uncles and stuff uh -huh. my mom had two brothers and so uh -huh. um they were really into John Wayne. Like my uh, grandparents are really into John Wayne. Mm -hmm. he, he was like their guy. Like, and when you look at film history, John Wayne is kind of what Tom Cruise is now in how oh, yeah. he's the one actor who's, who's mo whose current repertoire as it stands um, encompasses a different variety of filmmakers, subject matters and, and franchises, honestly. That's kind mm -hmm. of who John Wayne was back then. Um, and so John Wayne has always been a divisive figure because I remember even as a kid, and this is why when people talk shit about John Wayne now, I get it because, mm -hmm. um, for a long time, I thought the man was a bad fucking actor. Like I, like, I, like <laughs> seriously, like, like the, the caricature, the impressions, um, that you would see in like Looney Tunes carried mm -hmm. over to Animaniacs and stuff like that, or at least I did. Uh, like in Animaniacs and stuff like that. Like it, it really did kind of, and he talks really slow in a lot yeah. of movies and stuff like that. But the thing is though, I think I wrote about this on Letterboxd recently was that I was shown a lot of his like later movies, like within mm -hmm. the last like 20 years of his, of his career. Um, so stuff like, you know, Chisholm stuff like um, uh, the, the true grit sequel, I think Rooster Cogburn stuff like that, mm -hmm. where, he just feels hammy and he feels like he's mm -hmm. resting on a lot of the laurels that people parody him for. Mm -hmm. And honestly, even though like I really, really did enjoy Rio Bravo a lot of, for a long time, it wasn't for him. It was for Dean Martin and Angie Dickinson, yeah. everybody around him. Now I think he's genuinely phenomenal in that movie. And I think mm -hmm. he's really, really phenomenal here, even better here than he is in anything else. Um, simply because when you watch more John Wayne movies from the thirties, the forties, especially the fifties. Um, it's, it's very clear to me why he was such a powerful movie star presence, because when he walks into a room, you feel the magnitude of mm -hmm. his essence. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that he's juxtaposed against uh, Jeffrey Hunter, who by all intents and purposes um, was, was nowhere near the experienced performer that he was. 
Um, and I, I don't think that's his fault. It's just one of those yeah. things where I look at Westerns as well, not just from uh, an act like, hmm, let me put it this way, not just from a modern actoral perspective, but mm -hmm. also a physical perspective. Because again, these were early thrillers and action movies. So what John Wayne does here where he's almost like moving like a panther in like his flips and the way he moves his gun, uh, it, particularly in the action scenes, and the way that he kind of carries this dark, languishing weight um, on his shoulders as he kind of like walks throughout the movie, in mm -hmm. contrast to how Martin Polly does. Because the thing about Martin Polly as a character is that, especially when you see the way that he kind of lights up whenever, <clears throat> every time they cut back to, every time they stop at um, the original. Edward's home, uh, mm -hmm. where Vera Miles is, and um, Brad, who dies in the movie, like his dad yeah. and, and his dad's wife. That whole family, the movie kind of takes on a little bit of a warmth, and you get more of the comedy yeah. eats a little bit. You, that's where Martin shines, even though he, deep down, I think Martin wants to be a manly man, like like Ethan, that that classic John Wayne machismo. But but he really knows that he loves Baron Miles's character. He knows that he really does love the family lifestyle. That's that's his motivation for doing so. Yeah. And Wayne, you get more. I think there is subtlety, but it doesn't come across like it would in like a like a like a De Niro or a Pacino or anybody like that. I think it really does come across in the physicality and his iconography. And on that level. I do think he's he gives a, an excellent performance here, but I completely understand where the version of John Wayne comes from. I completely but he's just the right person, right time. Like it just all happened at the perfect moment for him to be a movie star. And I think with um I think it's very interesting the contrast with him and and uh Jeffrey Hunter. Because mm -hmm. I feel like they almost cast Jeffrey Hunter just because he is so green. Like he seems so green in the whole movie. And he, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but no, no, no. He's like very like bright-eyed and bushy tails. And becomes more and like it's even to the end, you know, just very like we're gonna do this, we're gonna find her. And I think that contrast is very necessary to show how to have John Wayne kind of shine and have those little subtleties that he has um, stand on their own. Well, also too, um, I think what helps John, what helped John Wayne in this era, excuse me. Sorry about that. Um, I think what helped him in this era was kind, kind of ascertain this mantle that we're talking about. Like again, the Tom Cruise of the fifties and stuff is that, he was taught by silent movie stars. In fact, yeah. um, Harry Carey Jr., who appears in a lot of... Okay, so Harry Carey Jr., um, um, his dad was Harry Carey. And Harry uh -huh. Carey appears in a lot of, like, John Wayne's... Uh, no, uh, well, John Wayne and John Ford's other stuff. Um, Harry Carey's in a movie called Wagon Master um, that came out six years before this that I'm a huge fan of. If you want cinematography in your Westerns, visuals... That is a super slept on, super ooey gooey, romantic, very visual, feel good type of Western that I that I just adore. And uh, Harry Carey Sr. is in the film. Um, 
and Harry Carey Sr. was one of John Ford's earliest guys from the silent movie days mm -hmm. and was responsible for helping John Wayne learn how to move mm -hmm. um, on camera without looking so stiff. Uh -huh. um, and I think a lot of those qualities that Ford and Carey and uh, other people kind of taught Wayne to do, I think you really do see that in Stagecoach. And I think that's why mm -hmm. when people watch that movie, it's like this burst of youth whenever yeah. uh, Wayne comes through in that iconic shot with the the, the flip of the gun, um, it's like, okay, this is Ringo. This is, okay, this guy is, he, he's he's the guy. Like, he's going to define this genre. Um, and I think, and I it's interesting because when I was younger, again, like, when I was getting into, like, spaghetti westerns and stuff, I was like, Eastwood's the guy. Like, he's, he's the yeah. pinnacle. He's the guy or whatever. And I still think Eastwood is one of the guys. Like, I think Eastwood, what he did was incredible. But I think as far as consistency goes, the fact that I do think the 50s Western, the more I dig into this decade, I think it's just, if you're watching a 50s Western, more often than not, it's going to be decent. Mm -hmm. Most times it's going to be better than any other decade for Westerns, in my opinion. Um, and John Wayne is the face of it. So I think by extension, he is the definitive Western star. Um, you know, I wouldn't call him the most interesting actor, Definitely not. Like I think there's more. There's been more interesting actors who've done westerns, um, both before and after The Searchers. Mm -hmm. But in terms of Mount Rushmore western performances from leads, I think Wayne in The Searchers specifically uh, deserves to be on there. And I think to fill out the others, you would have to have at least one more performance from another Wayne western. So yeah. um, that that's. That's that's kind of, but I I wanted to get on that John Wayne topic for just a minute, just to just to kind of break the ice there because uh, yeah, I wanted to know how you felt about, and really I wanted to know how you felt about all the performances in this movie. Was this your first time seeing this? Was this? Well, your... I mean, it's yeah, I haven't I've never seen this before, and okay. I thought it was extremely beautiful. Um, I had a hard time. With some of it just the race stuff was very awful the stuff with the women is really awful and well let's dig into it let's dig into well, that he, he and i also also noticed this in this in the movie stagecoach so it's not anything just to this movie but he uses and he's he uses these like characters to be quote unquote simple to be like break breaks in the movie and kind of bring humor and you know at the time it might have worked but did not work for me and, <laughs> and he, he does it and i and i understand it's like a beat you have to hit and like we are just like so beyond that it it was just uh but i i and i think the whole natalie wood of it all is kind of interesting because she's maybe in the movie for like what five eight minutes like i just yeah. found it really interesting that she's like so high build and people know of her in this movie and she's barely in it at all well she's a mcguffin like and that yeah absolutely and i get <laughs> and i and uh and i do find that interesting and i but i find that i find that aspect of the movie to be very effective because it's one of those things where um you get these movies sometimes where uh, they talk up a character throughout huge uh -huh. swaths of it, if not until like the very last act of the movie. Yeah. You finally get there and that character is played by an actress or an actor that we all know. Like that, yeah. that again, like 
like John Wayne, it's like you look at him, you know who he is, even if you've yeah. never seen a John Wayne movie. You look at Natalie Wood, you know who she is. And I think yeah. her doe-eyed um, innocence that comes through, even though she's scowling and very much through her clothing and whatnot and her makeup has modeled herself after the Comanche ways that she's assimilated to yeah. and really by default. Um, I think that makes for a very interesting juxtaposition. Now bring up the race stuff. Um, I actually do have a few notes about that yeah. um, from my perspective. Again, this is just my perspective. So um, let's get into scar. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's get into it. Scar. Okay. Okay. So he's played by an actor named Harry Brandon. Uh -huh. So up front, um, he's he's a Native American um, antagonist, the main villain of the movie, kind of the, in fact, I would argue he's the opposite of Ethan. Well, really not the opposite. He's kind of more similar to Ethan than we might not realize until yeah. the viewings because uh, Ethan's quest is very much, I have to get, I have to know where Debbie is. I have to get her back. Yeah. But is she my kid? Like, is she related to me anymore? Yeah. Who knows? Um, Scar, on the other hand, is like, I have to keep Debbie. I have to use my traps and my cunning yeah. and my leadership to stave these white guys away from her at all costs. That's that's his very simplistic mission. Now, we, when you see Scar for the first time in the movie, it's very early on. You automatically know who he is. I think Ford sets the setup around him is perfect. Then you get into the casting. <laughs> yeah, I know. Where it's it's you know, it's a blue-eyed, it's a blue-eyed white guy playing a Native American. Yeah. But in so I have two things to say about this. And I'm glad you watched Stagecoach because I'm gonna lean on that movie a bit as a bit of backup for the point okay. I'm about to make. So the idea was to to basically evoke a Comanche who was considered the last great Comanche chief. His name was Quanta, Quanta, uh, Quanta Parker, who was uh, a half white Native American. He was half white, half Comanche. Uh, uh -huh. He had very vivid blue eyes. That's what he's known for throughout history. Okay. Um, now, Harry Brandon also played, he played the real life Quanta Parker in a movie John Ford did later on um, that I have not seen yet, but I'm, it's mm -hmm. on my list. It's called uh, Two Road Together. Okay. So Ford was aware um, a little bit about, <laughs> about uh, an approach to race for that kind of thing. Because keep in mind, this is a movie made by, um, by all historical accounts, racist about race. And I think yeah. it's those contradictions in addition to its massive influence on media lasting to, to this very day yeah. that makes it such an interesting think piece of a movie. But I think that part is interesting. I think knowing that about Scar, it doesn't necessarily soften the blow a bit, but I understand where John Ford is coming from, from, with, from a modern context. And then also Ford, Ford is often disparaged, which, is, which hits a, er, an earlier point you made off top as to like, okay, why is he not as mm -hmm. talked about by modern uh, cinephiles like the Coppolas or the Kubricks and, and guys like that, the Spielbergs. Mm -hmm. I think, I think it's because in this woke era, and I hate to sound anti-woke or what I hate to be this guy, <laughs> but, but this, this is a genre I spent a lot of time with. So I yeah. defend it a bit. I think, hmm, how can I put this? I think 
John Ford was all the fact that he was born from Irish descent and the fact that he came into film within like within like its earliest stage. I yeah. think he always kind of had his finger on the pulse of, OK, like racism is wrong. How do I address that in this genre? Like, how do I get get it away from mm -hmm. like the, the more romanticized stagecoach mm -hmm. kinds of stuff? But even then, stagecoach. There's a there's a great scene in Stagecoach where uh, I think the character's name is Geronimo. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, mm -hmm. yeah. There's there there. So an so a Native American in that movie he's a bit older. I think he says Geronimo. How can we know he's not lying? And then the other character says, "No, they hate Apaches more than we do." And yeah. that line of dialogue, I, I feel like a lot of people just like. It's like they hit their heads and forget about that scene. Yeah, it doesn't exist because that scene, in context of the movie, really does show that there was racism, not just within white people, but also within Native Americans. And it's that dichotomy that you really see, I think, fleshed out in later Ford movies, especially this one. Well, as you said, John Ford was Irish, and what was Americans not friendly to around this time is Irish people since they came here. I'm not saying it's the same thing, but I'm sure he had faced some kind of racism on his own, even though he was a white man. And I'm not saying that to defend him at all, but sure. it he probably saw some of the differentiation in that same way. And he's making that differentiation in stagecoach as well. Definitely, definitely, and, and that's how I, um, that's how I, how I, you know, knowing that interpretation. Or, thank you for saying that. By the way, that was super yeah. eloquent. Um, you know, saying that, I, I think looking at the racial component of his movies from that Irish, very disparaged perspective. Yes, yeah. he benefited from certain privileges, but it's 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 the fact that he was always thinking forward. I feel like he always yeah. had. A, Finger on the pulse, and you—the fact that someone like us, a, a Scorsese, for example, um, you know, like I think Scorsese, this is one of his like top five movies of yep. all time. Mm -hmm. um, and and you look at the way that Scorsese approached race in the in his movies from the seventies on. I think, yeah. um, even though Scorsese's racial, you know, commentary was was never quite the fore, like. Mm -hmm something like the searchers i think the searchers definitely burped that inkling in other directors from these subsequent eras to really think mm -hmm. about that in a, in a different way and really ford developed helped develop that foundation so that other filmmakers could improve on that and so i do love the i don't necessarily love the fact that it's very <laughs> fun, you know playing a quanta parker yeah. factually but i i do appreciate the fact that I always appreciate in Westerns whenever they do go look at history and they try to appropriate that, no pun intended, for a, for a pulp aesthetic. Well, I think, so this is my whole thing with, and it's everything going on right now with how we treat these items from the past that are in the canon or just outside of it or anything that has dealt with any kind of politics that have might have changed over time mm. whether they be race sexism anything i think you have you cannot look at it with the language that we have now you have 
to look at it through the language they had at the time and mm -hmm. analyze it backwards because we can't expect people not that it's an excuse for people 50 70 years ago to act the way they did but they did what what are we going to do now to change that we have to look at these texts look at these movies look at anything and analyze them in the way that they were then and how we move forward from how they are agreed <laughs> I, I don't know i that just like i literally just tweeted about this earlier today because it, it drives me crazy that people think like i i think that's also probably another reason why it's hard for me to watch war movies and westerns is because like mm. it's something i try to steer away from in my ideology mm. so you know and it makes me confront it in that kind of history that we have that's not great and that's hard sometimes especially now that we're surrounded by it so much and we just like there's like all this oppression happening and you know i'm a person who's very left and i'm assuming you're probably someone who's a little bit more left as well and so we are on this <laughs> right now to you know protect these texts that have been around in our in our language for so long and make sure that they're still around for the future definitely definitely i mean who you're hitting upon a conflict <laughs> that i have i mean internally i mean because because yeah i mean i i i would say like uh, it, it's out there so yeah i do lean left um very left leaning. Right, don't leave me in politics well, you have to yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah you, with films like this yeah and i think the fact that, I mean, because this movie did not do well when it came out financially, like, yeah. and that's saying something. Because imagine if Tom Cruise opened a Mission Impossible movie and it didn't do well, like that's that's what the the flop of the Searchers kind of was. It wasn't an astronomical flop by all intents and purposes, but it was a movie that really made people uncomfortable yeah. back in the day. And it wasn't until um, Andrew Saris the the film critic of the time um who was kind of uh who was kind of following what the french were doing with the invention of auteur theory and stuff like that the, the the invention of the concept of auteur theory and um they kind of looked upon Truffaut was looking upon what ford was doing in movies like the searchers uh and kind of co-opting that and they started looking back on this movie and be like oh this is this is this is deep like this is yeah. this is a thing and it was that alongside with the creation of Lawrence Arabia in mm -hmm. 1962, like David Lean, um, a director who on um, I've talked about, <laughs> I feel like uh, on on several podcasts now. Like he, he, <laughs> he's he's one of he's one of my he's one of my guys for sure. Yeah. Um, he looked at the Searchers and was kind of he was kind of like hold my beer a bit because he he went yeah. from making these <laughs> visually stunning these often Technicolor romantic mm. dramas melodramas before he really began making epics yeah and so um the searchers kind of birthed you know what we had come to know as the modern epic there were epics before the searchers obviously but yeah. the searchers kind of created a new visual language for how to influence epics and yeah. epic filmmaking and then also how to create an epic quest movie an epic um uh, i can't even call like it's an adventure movie by default, but I mean, it's so dark and complex. I think it go, it just goes beyond that. And, but it's all those reasons though, that I think 
it's one of my favorite movies. It's not my favorite fourth, though. And I think that's yeah. an important distinction to make. E even though most would consider it his best, and I wouldn't argue with that, it it, it objectively probably is his best film. I'm a I'm a much bigger fan of The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance. That was okay. That was the first fourth that I really fell in love with. Um, so there's a bit of sentimentality, uh, sentimental value in my attachment to it. But it's really the fact that, not to say the racial stuff isn't there, like it is with all of his other movies. The sexism is is, is, yeah. is visible, unfortunately. Sorry, Lexi. But um... <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, it's okay. Just this once. <laughs> just, 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 just once. Uh, no, but it, it's the fact that it's such a full-on. It's digging into the the. It's it's looking at masculinity from such a dichotomous point of view. It, in The Searchers, it's Martin Pauly and Ethan. We talked about that. Yeah. But in that movie, it's Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne inhabiting mm -hmm. characters who are very much in their wheelhouse as actors. Yeah. Where you get the very machismo, very, yeah. well, howdy, ma'am, type of yeah. cowboy. <laughs> and then you have Jimmy Stewart, you know, doing his thing as a lawyer who's coming into a sundown town that has been pilfered and pillaged through by by history of outlaws having to build mm -hmm. it back from the ground up teaching these people how to read teaching business and it's these two people who have to come together versus just one cowboy to take down the outlaw of the title liberty balance mm -hmm. and the movie is very much about that um that's another film that i think you know i i think ford i think what he does visually in this in the searchers is admirable i think the epicness that he created kind mm -hmm. of accidentally through this movie was admirable but i think but i i have such a soft spot for his more smaller scale mm -hmm. story stories and liberty balance is very much a smaller scale story that's kind of looking back on movies like the searchers movies like my darling clementine wagon master um uh um fort apache and movies like mm -hmm. that and kind of waving a goodbye to that stuff in a way yeah and uh, I have such a soft spot for Westerns that do that, probably because I am such a Sergio Leone fan. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say, yeah, if you if you if you at least appreciate the searchers and and uh, stagecoach, because, again, I would like yeah. to hear more of your thoughts, uh, you know, in, in a bit. Uh, I definitely recommend Liberty Balance. It's one of my favorite favorite films of all time. Well, Jimmy Stewart is my number one crush of all time forever <laughs> and ever. So I'll probably have to check it out. He's a little old in this movie. I'll say that he's he's oh, okay. he, he's older, paired with still young looking Vera Miles. So you gotta gotta kind of over not say you gotta overlook it, but I'm just saying a little bit of a warning. <laughs> it's okay. He can still get it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I was gonna say is that it seems to be this theme for for him. And I read I listened to this interview with John Ford and the interviewer asked him about courage and mm. and he said um quiet quieter men have more courage than a big loud blowhard and that seems to be a lot of the thesis of so many of his movies are like and john wayne is the epitome of that and it seems like maybe jimmy stewart it, does that in a different way and perhaps in this movie oh definitely i mean I mean, that's the thing about John Wayne, though, is that he uh -huh. himself is such a, um, such a, such a, <laughs> uh, you know, such a, such a double-edged sword. I think because, on one end, yes, like he is, 
for his time, the matinee ideal, he yeah. cr he kind of redefined for his time like what masculinity looked like yeah. and what people aspired out of that. But then you look at his personal life. I don't know if you dug into that, but like he he kept saying all the time, like, hey, I'm going to go to war. I'm going to go to war. Yeah. Um, he never did. And <laughs> it's interesting that he's playing this Confederate soldier who yeah. is almost quietly regrettable. He's almost yeah. quietly re regretting his previous actions, but he's so hyper-masculine that he yeah. is – he never says it out loud. You, it comes yeah. across through his face, through his kind of – Man, his I don't even call it docile, but just his his eyes say a lot in this movie, I think, uh, in between the dialogue. He makes a lot with a lot of silences, even more so than than the dialogue, I think. And um, yeah, he makes a meal out of every word and he makes you eat it. <laughs> <laughs> no, literally, that's, <laughs> that's so true. Like that that is what he does, and he makes you want more. Well, the scene that gets me. Uh -huh. it, it gets me every time. And, and this pastime, it actually made me tear up a bit, to be honest. Uh -huh. um, it's when he's describing uh, to Martin what the what the Comanches uh, did to did to Lucy, where he yeah. he's like, "Hey, like I had to, like, what do you want? Don't ask me more. Like, I had to put yeah. pieces of her, like I had to I had to put pieces of her together and bury them. Like, yeah, what 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 do you want to know?" you know, that kind of thing. And he goes in that scene from not telling Martin any, anything to finally, yeah. um, finally um, giving into Martin's like wishes. Hey, I want to know what yeah. you want. Cause Martin's so young and he's yeah. so like inexperienced that he doesn't really, he doesn't really know the full horrors of what Ethan's seen. We don't really know the full horrors of what yeah. Ethan's seen, but we can project that because of the characterization yeah, it's strong enough to where we don't need to know everything, and then Wayne's yeah. performance conveys a lot of pathos, just saying a little bit. I actually rewound like twice to see if I missed something because I was like, "Did I just like blink or write down a note or something and like miss something that happened?" And I was like, "No, that it's just like everything carrying over into into his performance." But I was like, "I like had had to know. Did I miss something that horribly went wrong?" Like, ah, I was just like, "What? What is this horrible thing that happened?" But then I looked it up on Wikipedia and kind of found that out but hey we all do that sometimes you could tell it was awful i mean there's a lot of people in this movie i just kind of and it moves around so much and the i did not really like the stuff with martin and his woman who was waiting <laughs> for him oh very miles okay I, I, I was I, like, I why is she still waiting for this guy he's not that great like i really <laughs> once again i'm looking at it from a modern lens i guess maybe he's the only man within 50 miles 100 miles of her that was within marrying age but i just like was like find someone else well so i have two things to say to that mm -hmm. well actually i have three things so <laughs> the, fir the first thing if you don't mind me interjecting go ahead Alexa, go. <laughs> no, no. what's so, you here for no well the first thing is um I, I kind of knew that's what you're alluding to uh, with the with not the race stuff, but with the you know the the use of women in this movie. Yeah, and I do think a I do think a lot of their scenes this movie, um, um, not just as this movie ages. I mean, just off the gate, I just think is is a lot of the way that she's used for humor. I have issues with. Yeah. However, 
I do appreciate and I do actually like um, how she's used in this movie. And I, even though I, I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan of modern films necessarily uh -huh. using female characters. Yeah. Um, quote unquote using, but for a movie of this time that is a Western, I do think her presence is so important because she does function to show you to kind of extend on Martin's sensitivity a bit. Yeah. To show you that, hey, I've got a woman at home who's waiting on me, but I've got to find my my little cousin. That's yeah. what's most important. It is the internal struggle, and I get it. I absolutely it, get it. And she she offers her presence offers a bit of personal stakes for him that he could yeah. easily go back to her at any time. He's writing her letters. Their quest goes on for five years plus. Yeah. You know, and so her the letters that she recants through her narration mm -hmm. throughout different parts of the movie. I did but, like that part. I thought that part was a good touch to show how time moves. But the thing about her characterization as well is that yeah. there's a scene that I think a lot of people sleep on where it's a it's again another blinky you missed it moment where she says to to Martin, you know, going steady. We've been going steady for three, you know, ever since we were three years old. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's a bit of comedy I actually do think is pretty cute. Yeah. But um I think it's the fact that, yeah, like she, she there is no other man in her life like yeah. that who really caught her from early age. Like this is her longest love. And um, I have it written down. Goodness, because um, um, <laughs> uh, her her name is Lori. I keep saying this yeah. character, Fair Miles. Her name is Lori in the movie. Yeah. But um, the other guy, while Martin's away for that last year, that he come he basically comes in and there and he's about to marry Lori. Yeah. You know, when it becomes ostensibly clear to Lori that Martin's gonna go away forever. Um, before he actually does come back at the end, um, this guy is like gone again, skip to Malou, gone again. Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't know, I, I think that part's like actually uh really funny, but at the same time, it's like, well, what what would another guy be like in, in Lori's life? Like, what you know, a guy who doesn't really understand her and understand her love, and I think yeah. that understanding where. Hmm, I'm not saying you, I'm not saying you don't but understand where she's going to romantic in me, even though I don't like that she waited forever but you know i get it <laughs> well and two I, I think another just beauty of this movie is that it just balances so many different tones like it's romantic and comic and adventury and dark like that's the thing when you watch a lot of other westerns and i think that's why my esteem for the searchers grows where i watch it because when i watch you know Jesus, I'm sorry, mediocre Westerns like I did earlier today. <laughs> I was just like, man, it's just like the movie is like trying to be dark, but it doesn't sell it. In yeah. my opinion. I'm not going to say what movie it is because I don't like I, I don't like bashing movies. I really don't. I just don't follow, yeah. follow, me, follow me on Letterboxd to find out, I guess. Guys. But, <laughs> but, but, nice but plug. <laughs> had, had to plug. No, but <laughs> in all seriousness, though, like a lot of dark Westerns will just stay that the whole time, whereas yeah. the searchers. It's juggling so many different tones, and even though I wouldn't say that on a sad on, it's not a blockbuster that is meant to satisfy your hunger, your cravings yeah. for all of those things to be to be to be concluded and sent off of the boat. This movie is very yeah. much the opposite. It wants to be a thinking man's movie, but at the same yeah. time, it's it's you're getting a full course meal while you're while it's happening. Yeah. And even though by the ending you're coming up with like probably some questions, probably with some unresolved emotions. Mm -hmm. I think the romance is so important because it shows what Ethan doesn't have. And it yeah. shows what Martin has waiting on him the whole time. Martin's just too stubborn to really 
consider her emotions more fervently than he shows in the movie. And I think he finally does show that at the very end when he's like, Hey, yeah, my cousins, I know where she is. Like De I know where Debbie is. I have to stop her or else Ethan, you know, or else Ethan, Ethan will kill her. Yeah. And, and that's right after she's like, Ethan, Ethan's going to, you know, Ethan's going to murder her, dude. Like, why are you doing this? And I think that's the moment when she's like, when her love for him feels at its most tenuous, at its most weakened, it's most flaccid. I think that scene when he when she finally watches him move on the horse and and go in the opposite direction. I think that's when she's like, "Yeah, I can't marry this other guy." Yeah, I have to let Martin do his thing and be a man and 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 fulfill his purpose. And I think that's what makes the their part of the ending very very satisfying. Well, he's showing affection in the only way he really knows how and to the only family he really has it's like really her and uh vera and then debbie They're like really his two connections yeah any kind of family and he feels it to debbie more because you know this awful thing happened and he has to save her and vera is there safe you know so mm -hmm. it it he's He's doing the best that he can with what he's got, honestly, because like I'm sure that they didn't speak about their feelings. It's very well documented that people back then did not speak about their feelings, hidden away. And he's showing by doing rather than talking. For sure. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. I mean, yeah, I mean, I I again like um the bits of comedy within said scenes uh -huh. um with Lori. I'm not the world's biggest fan of those. I'm 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 actually not the world's biggest fan of the fight that breaks out um between Lori's soon-to-be husband yeah. and then Martin. Like I think that scene is all like it's like the movie stops for this like very yep. overlong comedy bit. Yeah, I felt that too. Yeah, and and that's something that Ford does. I've noticed watching more Ford movies this year, revisiting some. He has these weird comedy beats, and it's weird because like I'm not one to just like be a stickler against, you know. Yeah, uh, uh, comedy. It, it, like I, it, I'm aware it provides levity. Yeah, that's cool. But the movie is is the the tone is already perfect. It's it's mixing yeah. light and dark, and then the movie stops to have a character be like, "Oh, Ethan, you know, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think I saw him, but you know, yeah, like oh, it's, it's Futterman, yeah, you know, like that type that type of shit. I'm not, yeah, but and and that really. Um, I think that stuff I've learned to tolerate more on subsequent viewings. Again, even when I was like a teenager watching this movie, I was like, okay, get this comedy shit out of here. But you know, the cinematography, like you look at <laughs> the part I noticed on that fight is that you look, the camera sits on Debbie's face. Is it Debbie? No, no, it's the girlfriend. What's her name? Vera. Oh, uh, Lori. Lori, yes, the actions. Sorry, I'm messing up their names. Yes, but she is looking at them fighting over her, and she has like this crazy smile on her face. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed this part. And I'm like, why is they? They're not looking at the action at all for like the, it probably holds for like 10 to 15 seconds, and he's like wildly smiling, like she's happy that they're fighting over her. And I was just like, it's a weird scene, isn't it? A weird choice. I don't. I'm like okay i guess she's happy that they're fighting over her i'm not sure that seems to be what they're trying to convey i think that is what they're trying to convey i just think that that is so contradictory to like yes. 
the rest of her character development because ultimately I think if you take if you take that I think if you take that fight out and possibly substitute it with just a small conversation yeah maybe like a bit of a a bit of a good argument where or like even have like a shootout but like not even a shootout like where they're going to and then she pleads for them not to or whatever and like yeah well that's the their better humor or whatever and it's <laughs> like it would be such a like i don't know it'd be they could like have the you know flowing music that in her giving this grand speech and him being the good man or you know whatever i don't know i just feel like there's a better way of handling that it was just so weird no it is weird yeah the i i think yeah like substituting it with something like a shootout or even just like a mini conversation where yeah. the the soon-to-be husband makes a very strong argument against yeah. martin being in involved in the family any further and then he leaves for debbie yeah and then comes back for Lori, and then she says the line you know ethan's gonna kill her and then he's like yeah. well that's why i've got to save her i think yeah. that's the way you tell that story yeah uh versus having to mask it through a, a very i don't want to say, say dated comedy because i think there's a lot of comedies from so many comedies from that time that i think are, are hysterical today but yeah that yeah no i don't ford I've always had an issue with how he uses uses humor in his movies. It, it just comes off to me as very slapsticky, and I just don't think that's a strong suit. I think he yeah. is meant to do the deeper dramatic stories. The the he great knows that text. there needs to be a beat there, but he doesn't know how to execute it. Probably. Yeah, because like, like even because even cause he knows there's something that needs to you know punctuate the point almost. Well, because even the the character and and who people are probably going to hate me for saying this, but like, uh, what's his name? Uh, I wrote it down, uh, but the the character who talks like this, Ethan. I oh like, yeah, uh, Mose Hank Warden. Hank Warden was in um, he was in the Lone Ranger. Yeah, I think that was yeah. the first time I saw him. Yeah, he was in um, many John Ford movies, um, and John Wayne movies. He was in Chisholm, Real Lobo, Big Jake, stuff well, like what that. What I was saying is how he uses these simple, quote unquote, simple characters for comedy beats. They do the same thing in Stagecoach with the guy who's what? What do you call the person who like? I guess a driver. Oh, horse, uh, horse, uh, uh, driver or um. I was gonna say uh, a horse trader, but that's that's a different profession. But yeah, I know it, it's a driver. Yeah, the driver of the stagecoach, like one of them is like super, like you can tell he's not all there up there, I guess you could say is like <laughs> another way of saying it. And he's another person who's there for comedy and it just doesn't hit the beats that maybe it did, you know, almost a hundred years ago. Yeah, I can I can definitely see how audiences back then would like think that stuff is like a riot, yeah. but like just watching it nowadays, it's kind of like, all right, dude, can we just can we get exactly. on to the can we exactly. get on with this, you know? And yeah, you know, people because yeah, people will complain about superhero movies now, uh, with with overdoing the the one liners and stuff, but you look at movies back then, and I just think I just think that's indicative of, of the genre. I don't think it's yeah. right most of the time, but um literally like, i think yeah like people are gonna moan at one-liners <laughs> it's gonna be the same thing they'll be like why did they stop the movie for him to make this weird quip about you know i don't know sprite or whatever i don't know but like <laughs> they're needing a like a gyro or whatever i don't know now i want to see a cover of the searchers where john wayne just like <laughs> gets the glass sprite because back in the day and like 
he's like, yeah, Pilgrim, you know, I'm bequeathing you this Sprite. Yeah. <laughs> Old school product placement. Yeah. <laughs> if Sprite was even made back then, goodness. We're I'm a historian, Lexi, if you didn't know. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> but I guess I guess we gotta talk about the shots, the the scene that makes this movie, which is the door frame shots. Mm, yep. That's yep. what it, this movie becomes iconic for. Yeah, I mean. Well, the movie, so that that final shot's doing a lot of things. I it's and Jenny that's the movie too. Also, it's, well, it's Jenny Fleckting. Yeah, yeah, it's Jenny Fleckting to the beginning of the film yes. when um, after the tile card, you see um, the aunt or you, the sister yeah. or whatever. Yeah, the, you see the, the you see John the, Wayne, the aunt of Martin. <laughs> Basically, yeah, yeah, I, whatever. It, it's late, guys. I'm sorry. It's, we're, we're sorry. We're sorry. <laughs> No, but she she's coming out of the shadows, and you and you see that it's an entrance. Like already, yeah. you're you're seeing this beautiful vista, this beautiful landscape from her eyes, and then the yeah. the next shot is her, um, looking from afar, and she's looking for someone. Like her hands yeah. above her eyebrows, and she she's clearly like looking for someone. And then she sees John Wayne, um, just from the get go, just setting up his iconography, setting up his legend. Uh, just uh, coming in on a horse, all calm and collected. Before you really get to see his like face, you get to see like the different tones of it in subsequent yeah. scenes. Already, like the music is is super is super. Uh, man, it's very Wagner esque. It's very John Williams esque. It almost feels like a play setup. Like we're yeah. least, like you. It's making you feel like you are the audience. And you are entering this world through the door, and like the, it's like oh okay, it's like it reminded me kind of like, of almost like Moulin Rouge where they have the theater and it's like the the, the curtains right. part, and it's like you're going in and the and the the camera moves in and then you're out and then you're here and then it kind of moves the other way as you as you're um, at the end of the movie when you just see you know John Wayne in the door. For sure, no, definitely. I mean, it it it, it establishes so much in that es mm -hmm. really establishing shot. Um, <laughs> and about that that ending shot, I mean, it's almost the opposite. Where like it goes back to that beginning setup where it's just all shadow, and yeah. then the the camera zeroing in from the um, kind of from the the frame. It's using that as a framework to yeah. show you. Um, to show you the the landscape from inside uh, of the interior, and you see John Wayne, like he he looks back at us, yeah, turns around, and then he just goes off, and he's going off into a world that that's the world that he feels he belongs to, and the world that we're in as an audience is a world that he'll never be a part of, and it's kind of like yeah. the ultimate capper to his legend. Um, and I didn't really give. You know, obviously the final shot is so iconic. You see it mm -hmm. in like, Glorious Bastards. Yeah. Uh, and, like, especially at the, the, the iconic opening of that movie um, is kind of that. It's funny because the the opening of that movie is a hybrid of The Searchers and Once Upon a Time in the West. Mm. Uh, because um, at the beginning of Once Upon a Time in the West, I, I think the beginning of that movie, I think it's the best opening in any movie. Mm. Uh, straight up. Like, it is just... 10 to 15 minutes of nothing but like 
very quiet setup. You're hearing diagnostic yeah. noises. It's just building tension. You're just getting angsty. You're just like yeah. you're taking your seat watching it. And then it just explodes into a shootout. And that's very much what Inglorious Bastards was riffing on. Um, yeah. With a bit of the visual language that John Ford created here. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, I I didn't really give the visuals the credit they deserve until again the, these these past couple of viewings um um in the past week because yeah i mean i i've always known for a long time okay this is you know i've seen the searchers as a classic it's a really good movie now it, it really is becoming one of my favorite movies and uh mm -hmm. i just uh the visuals are because are because of that i mean i mean just the way that Ford is able to capture danger coming from afar, like with um, with the Comanche always coming on horses, the music blaring in a, in a to kind of signify villainy. He uses wide shots really well. He uses like faraway shots very well to where you can still see them kind yeah. of in the background to kind of give you a sense of danger. I, I think there's a lot of really, really cool visuals in this movie. Um, um, so I was going to read this quote from... Uh, the cinematographer Winton C. Hawk. I always want to make sure I get his name right. So he said, um, it was rather a daring shot because we had a vertical doorway and a horizontal frame. But here again, you're bold and you gamble and it's a shot that Jack wanted. He had his reasons. He felt the drama of it. So I set it up and tried to fill the screen as best I could and handled it that way. That's so cool. Yeah, it is. And I never thought of it before, though, a, a horizontal meets vertical. I you never know? I never had either. But yeah, now I'm like, oh, I can totally see that. Yeah, now you see it. It's so interesting. Because good cinematography is like symmetrical. And yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that is something I learned. Because um, I did do film school for a little bit. I, yeah. I never finished. But... I switched majors, so I I finished college, yeah. guys. I swear, but <laughs> I didn't. But the the point is, is that yeah, like it is very symmetrical. The shot compositions, yeah. and I think it kind of goes to what you were saying was how important is cinematography. I think the cinematography yeah. is a character in this movie. It is, and it takes on different meanings through each passing yeah. year that the movie depicts. And I think that that's really really dope. It is. Well, I I was gonna ask you for any Western recommendations, but you threw out a few. But do you want to throw them out again? Sure, sure. People can write them down or whatever. Yeah, I mean, um, definitely. Okay, so um, like I said, like my John Ford recommendations. Um, if you if you've already seen Searchers and Stagecoach, definitely seek out uh, the Man Who Shot Liberty Balance from 1962. Um, I highly recommend Wagon Master from 1950. Um, that's that's a movie that I'm just going to be banging the drum for all year. I, just think, <laughs> I, think, I think more people should just see that movie. Yeah, and see a different side. And it, it's it's not going to connect with everybody. It's kind of under. It's kind of one of Ford's B sides. Yeah, but uh, but I think um, that's really cool. Another movie um, that I'm a, that I'm a, a pretty big fan of that I think fits into this kind of race western uh kind of uh kind of bag is a is a movie i discovered recently called ombre from 1967 okay. um for all the paul newman fans out there oh okay this is a forgotten i think a forgotten masterpiece uh -huh. starring paul newman um he's playing a uh, he's playing 
who was he was playing who was originally a white a white kid uh-huh. who was kidnapped by uh, Apaches. So okay. he's raised as an Apache um, and is comfortable with them. He's quiet. He's silent. Um, and then he he later has to come back into what's considered the land of of the white land, basically. Yeah. Um, and he gets into a stagecoach with all these like rich people, and um, there's even a prostitute in the, in the cast as well of characters. And the movie is kind of like it's looking at the stagecoach premise, but doing so through a very revisionist lens. Okay. And so you get to see a more reserved side of Paul Newman's kind of naturalistic style of acting while he's in a movie with like Frederick March and, um, Oh God, what's her name? Um, Barbara Rush, who was in a lot of old movies of the time. Uh-huh. Um, uh, Martin Balsam, uh, is in the movie, uh, and has a really great role. Um, and the bad guy is Richard Boone, who's a, a very popular Western actor of the time, made movies with John Wayne and Randolph Scott actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and the movie Lexi, oh my God, it's so, it's so <laughs> phenomenal. It's literally, if, if you're talking about like amazing shots, oh yeah. my, um, it's shot by a man named James Wong Howe mm-hmm. who shot uh, the thin man and seconds. Okay. And really he was a super innovative cinematographer of, um, of, of especially the Asian descent and kind of takes uh-huh takes kind of like the Eastern influences and, and injected them into the very literal Western of this movie, but also yeah. uh, Western uh, Western cinema as well. Yeah. Um, and you see his voice come through in the cinematography and the script. Oh my God. The script is just wonderful. So many, so much great dialogue. Uh, just, a, just a great tight thriller that I think um, is, is one of Paul Newman's most interesting roles. So definitely, if you want a break from John Wayne, definitely check out Andre. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Do you want to throw out any uh, any information people can follow you on or whatever, or if you want to be followed or left alone? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, no, no I, I, in all seriousness, um, thank you for having me, Lexi. Yeah. Um, and if, if people want to follow me um, any further, uh, follow, follow me on twitter.com at uh, P-R-E-S-T-O-M-I-T or letterboxd at P-R-E-S-T-O underscore M-I-T-C-H. Um, always plugging away at, you know, movies I'm watching, watching or uh, reviews I have and stuff like that. So, um, I yeah. always appreciate what you post because you're a little bit out of the norm. You go out, you go out of the, the little box and you find new things. And I'm always interested in what you're posting and watching. So I appreciate that. Thank you for saying that. That, that means yeah. a lot to hear. Truly. Yeah. truly. Well, um, thank you again. And you can follow Schooled by Cinema on Instagram or Twitter. And thank you again. 